is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a day, what a life. Saturday, March 27, 2021. I like to get up for every one of my broadcasts, and I am thrilled to have this podcast opportunity this week. But it's been a bad week, a sad week, but I have the perfect guest, Steve Woodrow, who can do something about it. He's in the state legislature out of Denver, and he's going to react to the Boulder Massacre. So does Ken Toltz. He once ran against Tom Tancredo in the district that Columbine occupies, Columbine High School. He ran right after that tragedy against Tancredo. He was the Democrat Tancredo, the Republican. Tancredo won. Ken Toltz lost. But he was right about guns. He still is. Now he's in Israel where they have their own gun laws, learn about it, learn what happened in their election. Ken, his father, Warren Toltz, and his grandfather before started Dependable Cleaners, and they always hooked up in King Super Shopping Centers, and Ken Toltz lived in that Table Mesa area of Boulder. Ken Toltz has a lot to say, but so does my troubadour. He's played a lot of musical gigs up there. He's well-known as musician Dave Gunders, Boulder, Colorado. And now this tragedy, we talk about it with his perfect song, Revelation Town. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Craig. Hey, Troubadour. Happy Passover, Craig. Happy Passover, to you, my troubadour, it is Arab Passover. Shabbat Shalom. We record Shabbat this on shalom. Friday night after a terrible week, one of the worst in modern memories with the massacre at the King Supers in Boulder. And it occurs to me, David, that I have spent so much time talking about Boulder. You and I have spoken about it. Boulder DA Michael Doherty, now in the eye of this storm. Stan Garnett, Carol McKinley spoke about CU Boulder. It was a big part of my life. I just had to go make a condolence call up to Boulder this Friday afternoon, and I just got back. What was it like, Craig? First of all, I take Boulder for granted. I know it's big in your life, and we will get to that, but it's kind of embraced by the Rocky Mountains. I am really fortunate enough to live in a part of Arapahoe County where off my deck, I can see the Boulder flat irons. And when you go down Davidson Hill, and I stopped this time at this scenic overlook, and I really didn't understand Sugarloaf Mountain, I know you do, but it had snow on it. And I went out, there's a marker on top of the hill, and it points out all the mountains because it had caught my eye probably many times before. I knew Flagstaff Mountain, and my God, the Flatirons. 
they were speckled with snow to my left. And then when you come down the hill, it's really the first exit, Table Mesa, which is part of South Boulder Road. It changes right there under what I call the Boulder Turnpike, because I grew up here, and I remember when it was the first toll road I ever saw. And there's also a monument to that at the top of that scenic overlook. Anyway, I went right to that King Supers, Table Mason, Broadway, and what a memorial it is. Some religious, some community, everything Boulder, a lot of signs saying we need gun control. I've recorded great interviews with Ken Toltz and Steve Woodrow, who's in the legislature, and we agree on the subject. And it seemed like here, gun control was the dominant sign on the fencing outside the King Supers. That center has really grown. That was my King Supers when I went to law school. But now it's the shops at Table Mesa, and there's a Whole Foods around back. But it's a King Supers, man. And, you know, I buy my matzah for Passover every year of my life at King Supers. It's part of Colorado. You weren't born here, but it's even older than I am as a native Colorado institution. And to see it at a King Supers, then I went over to the Crossroads King Supers and I shopped there just as a show of support. You know, I haven't been going into grocery stores. I've been having it brought to my car. But I felt like, hey, I'm two weeks free of the vaccine. I'm not going to be scared to go into a Boulder King Supers. In between, I went up Broadway to my law school, CU Law School. It's kind of locked down right now, but it was warm enough to sit outside and start typing my column for the Colorado Sun and get my thoughts together for this podcast. And Troubadour, I really appreciate you allowing me to talk about it. Thanks for asking. Of course, of course. No, it's it's good you do things like that, Craig. You take, take time to yourself and... Uh... You know, heading up to Boulder, I'll be going up this Sunday to play with some friends, and um, it's in all of our all of our hearts and all of our thoughts now. And it was just like you said, it was it was terrible. It was a week of, of horror, and um, all made possible. It's true by the you know by the capability of this type of weapon. It's you know I you know when I hear when I hear you. That you that you're reading at this memorial, most you know, most of the comments being uh, about gun control. It, well, it makes a lot of sense because you know there's always been crazies in this world, but they're so empowered with these automatic weapons or semi-automatic weapons. It just doesn't make any sense for those kinds of weapons to be in anyone's hands. I I don't understand it. It's, it's a fetish. It's, it's the an kind ideology. of person who would be in a cult. Well, it is, but it's protected. But it, what you say is true, and it, and it's but it's protected by this ideology where it's you know mingled with patriotism and freedom. You know, freedom as an American to enjoy carrying of arms. But why we can't have a intelligent conversation and not have to go to those places so that we can really talk about what reason would do we need? Does anyone need? to have those kinds of weapons. It just makes it too easy for people like, like this fellow to, uh, to take out a lot of people. 
I was thinking about these things as I sat in the courtyard of my law school, and I was there when they opened that new Wolf Law building, and Justice Stephen Breyer was there. He dissented shortly thereafter, I do believe, in the Heller case, where Antonin Scalia said, you know what, forget about that in order to have a well-regulated militia language. Every adult American has a right to a gun. Okay, well, that was the first time the Supreme Court had said that. And now it's been solidified with Donald Trump appointing three more Supreme Court justices. So I was thinking about the law and how it interplays on this. It's quite a conundrum, I'll tell you. But last week we talked about your beautiful song, All That Water, The Boulder Flood. It's such a perfect place. And I just want to tell you this story that I was thinking you know, about my stomach, where should I eat? Because there are so many favorite places for me to eat. And I thought about the place where you've played a lot of gigs and I've eaten many a delicious cheeseburger. And it's right on the way is the Dark Horse, right? I knew you were going there, yeah. But I was thinking about the Village Coffee Shop, someplace on Pearl Street. But then this is how nice the people in Boulder are. The Tandoori restaurant, the Indian restaurant, they started giving out food to the people just at the memorial. It was almost like making a condolence call. And here's the family serving you food. So I ate with the other people. And then I went to Sweet Cow, the ice cream shop. And I checked in on those people. I said, how are you doing? They said, well, it's been rough, but everybody's been so nice. And then I went into the pet treat store and I talked to them and they just were nice. The people in Boulder, King Supers at Crossroads, Boulder has a certain niceness to it. I don't think it's going to go away. And that brings us to your song. Gosh, Dave Gunders, when you and I went on a walk this week and I said, you know, it's going to be Passover next week. It's an eight day holiday. It is Arab Passover. but We've got to talk about this Boulder tragedy. And damn, you came up with a song that I've never heard before. And I thought I knew your whole library. Tell us about this song, when you created it. I think it's one of the most impactful songs you've ever written. And it just could be the song perfect for Boulder, the town you love, the town I love and what it's going through right now. That song came to me when uh, I was um, explaining to my children, this is all eight or nine years ago, Craig, I don't know if people will remember, but there was this, um, there was a belief that in 2012, there was gonna be some kind of event. I don't even know what it was going to be, whether it was a a physical event of the polarity of the the earth changing or, or some, some big change that people needed to prepare for. But, you know, the idea of the end of days was being followed by, by some cult people. One that I met, actually, he was a furniture maker who told me to, that, you know, I should buy food and hunker down. And, you know, that basically the, the change was coming. And uh, the girls heard about that, too. My, my girls were probably in there, you know, they were probably, you know, 10 and 11 in that age range. And, you know, I, I was telling them how f- for so, you know, for as long as people have been around, there have been those soothsayers or so-called seers 
that have predicted the the end of the world. And that song came about in my way of explaining to them that, you know, the 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 the, the end of days and what happens in the world, in in some respects, we're living with it. Not that it's we we always live with those kinds of things happening. Um, and so that's the nature of that song. Wow, it's perfect. And think about it. We're on the edge of Passover. Tell the Exodus story, the 10 plagues. It's almost like we're living through it. Steve Woodrow said it's like we're going through the Red Sea. I feel like we're still going through the plagues. I mean, we just had COVID. Hell, while you're driving up to Boulder, I couldn't help but think about that United Airlines plane that dropped in parts over Broomfield recently. That's pretty unusual. And now guns, the plague of assault weapons. But your song, Dave Cunders, I recognize your style. I've heard you write the blues before, but who's that deep-throated singer you got on this song? (laughs) That's just me singing the blues. Oh, I think it's fantastic. And you start out wailing, right? Right. Well, that's the harmony on the harp. The blues harp is that I'm playing as well. I know, but you start, you're emoting. Not all of it are yeah. words. You got a lot of na 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 and wailing. Right. And I, I'm thinking, what a perfect blues song. Because when you're saying na 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 and you get intense, you say, no, no, no. It's like the first stage of grief, denial. Right. Denial. Right. right? And the other, you know, the other thing I just want to mention as I'm thinking about the song. It's um, you know, the 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 singer is is saying is talking to his his lover, right? And um, he's basically he's saying there's nothing going down in Revelation Town, ain't already happening here. In other words, we're going through this all the time. But he says, slide on over, let let me whisper in your ear. He basically says we we need to enjoy this life every day, because you never know what can happen, and it's best not to perseverate on that. We have to. Enjoy this wonderful life. That's what we should be thinking about. That's what we should be doing. The song titled Revelation Town. I love that. And you said ain't nothing happening in Revelation Town that's not already happening here. And it could be Boulder, Colorado. I picture you at a saloon with an attractive woman getting more attractive as you drink beer. And you're lying about... (laughs) The Bible, bad things are going to come, so we may as well have some fun. Right. I, you I think, think, it's, you yeah. think it's a good pickup line. <laughs> well, it ain't bad. Well, it ain't bad. Did that work at the Dark Horse? I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I'll tell you what. You got to laugh, and that's what I come away from. You know, it really was like paying a shiva call. And I feel better for right. doing it. I got some food, and I realized that the people around it can still smile, although with a mask, you can't be sure. But my God, we've been going through it. But I think Boulder is going to be resilient. Boulder is strong. Your song, Revelation Town, uh, I, I think it's it should, I will always associate it with uh, this tragedy in Boulder. Because you have the right spirit, Dave Gunders, our troubadour. Without further ado, Revelation Town. Thank you, Craig. Thank you.
been talking World come to an end That's how they've been talking Since the world began Don't worry darling There ain't no thing to fear Ain't nothing coming down Revelation town Ain't already happening here Said in the Bible, bad things gonna come. Ain't nothing to do, babe, but go out and have our fun. Yeah, had our share of trouble. No use crying in our beer. Ain't nothing coming down Revelation Town. Ain't already. Happening here almost 40 years that I've been a lawyer, graduated CU Law in 1981, and began immediately. I am now with the law firm of Springer and Steinberg. Jeff Springer, a renowned civil attorney, one of the best in America. Harvey Steinberg, preeminent criminal defense attorney. 
We do it all at Springer and Steinberg, way over a dozen lawyers. If you need legal help, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig. We can deal with your legal situation and make it better. Thank you. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thanks a lot for calling, Steve. Oh, no problem. Yeah, we did third readings a little early. I was in the middle of pressing the all-important button. Okay, wonderful. I know how busy you must be, and I have a lot of thoughts, and I'm headed up to Boulder today. I feel drawn to it, having gone to CU Law and just done a lot of important things in my life in Boulder. What about you? Do you have Boulder connections? My cousins went to CU Boulder for undergrad. So when I would come visit as a Midwestern boy, you know, growing up in Michigan, I would love coming to visit Boulder. I applied to CU Boulder for law school, wasn't fortunate enough to get in. That's why I lived in Chicago for nine years, because my first choice, I wasn't able to make it. Everyone in the state has close ties to Boulder. It's the good place. It's the good city. It's, it's just, this is devastating, Craig. I was thinking about it being a native, how when I was a kid, John Love was the governor. And for a while, Colorado Springs put forth a lot of state candidates. But right now, Jared Polis and his Boulder roots, Phil Weiser, former dean of CU Law School, and our secretary of state, Jenna Griswold, you can't really go to Estes Park from Denver without going through Boulder now, can you? (laughs) No, you can't. I just think there's a certain centrality to Boulder in the consciousness of a lot of Coloradans. Yeah, well, look, it's our, you know, growing up in Michigan, it's our Ann Arbor, okay? It's our bastion of liberalism and thought, and it's a great place to live. It's known throughout the country as having, I think, the most days of sunshine of anywhere. Anyone who's taken that drive from Denver on 36, when you first see Boulder, in the valley, it's gorgeous, it's breathtaking, and everyone's been there. It's not just the ties to Boulder. It's incredible the number of ties people have to that King Supers, Craig. Yeah, it was my King Supers when I went to CU Law School. I texted with Tim Timkovich to do some name-dropping, chief judge of the Tenth Circuit, but we lived together in a neighborhood in Boulder one of our years of law school, and that was definitely where we shopped for everything. Yeah, it's uh, King Supers, you know, a little bit about my background. My first quote-unquote real job was when I was 15 in 1995 in Michigan working at Kroger. I was a bag boy. They called us courtesy clerks. But, you know, coming out here, having King Supers, it's part of my stump speech. For years, I've said that my family loves House District 6. We love living in Colorado, and we do really cool Colorado things. We camp, we hike, we shop at King Supers. King Supers is so central to what it means to just be uh, a Coloradan. I think, I, I don't think I can name a person who hasn't shopped there. It's, it's an important, you know, sort of just steady constant in all of our lives. And I think that's part of why this is, in addition to everything else, so traumatizing. Because we've all been there. This could have been any one of us. And when that type of crime is committed, it's a reminder that we are all victims of gun violence. We are all victims of this. 
none of us are now able to go to King Supers without this thought in our head. We weren't able to do it with schools. We weren't able to do it with the movie theater. And now they've taken King Supers from us. And so, you know, we've got to take a stand and say enough is enough. I could not agree more. I remember King Supers all my life. It's a Colorado company. It did get bought out by Kroger, but it's retained. It's Colorado flavor, and you get a kick traveling around Colorado. I'm, at least I do, to see City Market and to know it's King Supers by another name. It's so Colorado. Right. I don't know any company more associated with Colorado or my life because when we go by Passover Matzah, we go to King Supers, and it's always there for us. And is it going to be a game changer? Steve Woodrow, representative, state government, you've been outspoken on the gun issue. I personally love it. I want to know how you and your colleagues are going to react. What are the politics of this? Well, like, like they have been for years, the politics on gun bills in Colorado is fraught. Um, there are a lot of folks. Uh, who feel very passionately about the Second Amendment. You know, there's a congresswoman from Colorado who's, you know, essentially made it her her one trick in, in her pony show. It's easy for certain politicians to glom onto this issue because there's a segment of the population that is very vocal, very loud, exceptionally outspoken when it comes to guns. They equate uh, supposedly inanimate objects with liberty and with equality. I think you and I have discussed before the old quote about Samuel Colt, God made man, Samuel Colt made him equal. And a lot of my colleagues still feel that way. The good news is is that they're in the minority. The majority of the folks down here want to get something done and want to make it meaningful. And what that looks like is difficult because, to be fair, Colorado's done a lot of the quote-unquote things that a state can do. We do have universal background checks on an insta-check system here. We do have a red flag law that was highly contentious when passed. We do have what some experts would consider decent gun laws in terms of gun safety. Uh, But there's a lot more that we can do. I mean, let's be honest. We can do waiting periods. We can do, you know, things like remove preemption to allow communities like Boulder to ban assault weapons. And we need to be clear that we're not going to prevent every crime. No law is so perfect that it prevents anyone from breaking it. That's not the point. The point is to deter, and the point is to get justice when these things happen. Overall, if we really want to cut down on gun violence, we need to take a look at the fact that we have over 400 million guns in circulation. That is something that didn't exist when I was growing up and certainly didn't exist when you were growing up. During the 1980s and 90s, for a large part, we produced and manufactured and imported between three and four and a half million guns per year. Today, and uh, for the last eight to 10 years or so, that's been over 15 million guns per year. We have simply flooded the market. Guns are everywhere. And when you have guns so readily available, we're going to have high incidences of gun crimes and gun violence. So we need to look at reducing the the prevalence of guns, and that has to be done, I think, on the federal level, whether it's an assault weapons ban nationally, a gun buyback programs, looking at limitations and restrictions on imports, tariffs, making these uh, items far more expensive, and then looking at ammunition. You know, the basic message, though, is 400 million guns hasn't worked. If guns made us safe, America would be the safest advanced country on Earth but we know that that's not true. 
it's made us less safe. And the framers of the Constitution never envisioned this. Not when they were dealing with muskets that could fire one or two rounds a minute. So we have a modern day problem and it's going to take modern day leadership to fix it. Wow. I look back on my career and it's a homicide duty chief deputy DA. I would respond to crime scenes, including Cameron Smith, who got gunned down in a Park Hill neighborhood in one of our first gang related shootings. And then I went on to handle mass murders by shooting. I saw enough of it. I got involved in fighting this battle. And even back then we heard, well, there's so many guns in circulation, but I know you won't throw up your hands, but fight that instinct. Hey, there are so many, we can't do anything. We need to make a start. I hope that the legislation in front of you guys is going to sail through, including mandatory reporting on stolen guns. Mike Doherty was on in more innocent times three weeks ago on my show advocating for that. So many of my crimes started with somebody stealing a gun out of a Denver glove compartment or a burglary. You know all about it. Tell me that law is going to pass now through your body. Yeah, I appreciate the question and the highlighting of the lost and stolen law or the bill that's making its way through. It passed committee. I was lucky enough to to be on uh, House Judiciary hearing that bill. Uh, and the testimony was exceptionally powerful. We heard from a woman who lost her daughter when a police officer's AK-47 was stolen and used to gun her down. Could I stop you one second? Because that's Isabella Thales, who was walking her dog along with her beloved Darian Simon. I represent Darian Simon. And all the articles talk about that assault weapon being stolen from that Denver police sergeant. And I'm just here to tell you that I don't know that, and I'm the lawyer involved. So I just wanted to throw that in there. But this hits close to home. And thank you for letting me say that. But I know Bella's mother is passionate about this issue. And and so am I. We need to have mandatory reporting because in your district, I don't know uh, the Capitol Hill King Supers, but that was the scene of horrific shooting death of Tom Holler, July 27, 1993. And that was a stolen gun. So I'm all for you. Sorry for interrupting, but it was a good chance for me to tell everybody what I just told you. No, absolutely. And we always want to be accurate in our discussions about this. And I appreciate you you educating me and, and the audience. The testimony, either way, is very powerful when you hear from a mother describe being able to identify her daughter from her bare feet sticking out of the white cloth. Um, and that's... Uh, that's something that we need to listen to because no one wants anyone else to go through that. No one wants anyone else to experience that. I thought this week a lot about my colleague, Representative Tom Sullivan, who lost his son Alex in the Aurora Theater shooting, who comes to this building every day trying to prevent what happened this week in Boulder. Every day since he ran for office, he's been working on this, preventing this, trying to stop this and getting our attention and our focus on this so we don't have more tragedies and we don't have more families, you know, looking at an empty chair at the dinner table. And it's crushing when these incidents happen because afterwards we get into the the same old debates. And what we need to do is we need to move on to action. The lost and stolen bill is 
you know, it was already in the works. It's going to pass. It's not being debated today. Uh, it'll be sometime, I believe, next week on the floor, and that'll be a lengthy and lively discussion, just as the safe storage bill was earlier this session. But we're not going to shy away from doing the work and having the discussions. Uh, the, you know, quote-unquote other side gets to come down and talk about how important guns are and how we're supposedly punishing law-abiding citizens. I disagree. I think uh, responsible gun owners want uh, reasonable gun safety laws, and that they support these bills, and they come and they testify and support. And so, you know, we're going to keep working. We have other things that we can still do as a state, but this is going to take all hands on deck. There are other states. Gary, Indiana proves that no matter what Chicago does, we're going to need some type of federal response because, you know, one city, one state can't do it alone. Not when you have neighbors who have different views. And so we're going to have to come together and figure out which policies are going to work. The most important thing, though, is to send the message is that this gun fetish culture has gone too far. We respect the Second Amendment. It's there. Absent some type of constitutional convention, we're not going to be getting rid of it anytime soon. So the question is, what can we do to be reasonable? It says well-regulated militia. I think we've seen that the militia has very few regulations. We need to take that back. No one's saying get rid of an individual's right to keep and bear arms. Heller decided that for now. But we can still be reasonable. And putting so. guns yeah. on your bookshelf, putting guns on your bookshelf, putting guns on your hips when you go to a town hall, pretending that people are coming for your guns and that you need them to repel a tyrannical government is all nonsense. It's all performative. It's cheap. It's a virtue signal and it's broken. And instead of all that nonsense, we need people to get serious. Otherwise, we're going to keep seeing these incidents play out. Well, I'm serious, and I'm not on right-wing talk radio anymore. And to a degree, I think I kind of kept my powder dry for a little while because nothing animates these guys more or as part of their profit center more. I can't tell you how many firearms dealers have advertised on talk radio. I never took their money. I never wanted to be responsible for a store that was going to sell an AR-15 type weapon to a disturbed person like the guy who committed the crime in Boulder. And we will get to him. But now it comes to the big enchilada. I don't know if Colorado's ready for it. I just traveled to the Western Slope. I saw a lot of flags, you know, with assault weapons on it. Just try to take it. And a lot of people who think that Trump and Pence are still in an election because they have their flags out still, that's disturbing. I know what you're up against. But other states have banned assault weapons. America banned assault weapons. Beautiful Denver, Colorado, that you represent, they banned assault weapons. I reread that Robertson case by Lou Rivera upholding Denver's assault weapon ban. It amazed me when Boulder's assault weapon ban got struck down for a different reason. But the bottom line is you have the power, Representative Woodrow, with your colleagues to talk about, introduce, and maybe pass an assault weapon ban. Are you going to do it? 
Well, I appreciate the question, and that's certainly something that we're discussing. And I think that this, that discussion is happening nationally. It's happening, I believe, between leadership of probably every state and city right now. It's going to be taken more seriously some places than others. I can tell you that it's something I fully support. When you talk about a national assault weapons ban, let's just remind people what that was from 1994 to 2004. The United States of America nationally, on a federal level, banned assault weapons. And there were the same arguments that we see now. How do you define assault weapon? You know, people quibbling about, you know, whether this or that feature should be included. But by and large, it worked. Between that time, those 10 years, we had one mass shooting where 10 or more people, including the shooter, was killed. That was Columbine. And we've discussed before that that was supposed to be a once in a generation horrific event that we learned from. Instead, when the assault weapons ban sunsetted in 04, starting from 2005 with Red Lake, Minnesota, onto this past week in Boulder, in those 16 years, we've had 18, 18 mass shootings where 10 or more people, including the shooter, have died. We now took what was once in a generation, or at least once in a decade, and a, a horrific event, and we've made it more than annual. That is a failure. It is a policy failure. It fails our children. I can only imagine the trauma inflicted upon a generation of youth that sees the adults in their lives refuse to take action in the wake of these repeated traumas. We have got to get our heads on straight here. Uh, we had a policy. It was not perfect. I'm not saying that it did away with mass shootings during those 10 years, but they were fewer and they were less deadly when they occurred. There's going to be an article coming out of an East Coast publication about Felix Sparks, a guy I've profiled on my podcast and in my Colorado Sun column. And he was part of the litigants in that Robertson case that upheld Denver's assault weapon ban. And when people say, well, you don't know what an assault weapon is, you can't define it, Denver did it, and it's held up for over 20 years. Anyway, Felix Sparks, I was asked by the historians writing this article, well, what was the vote? Because there was a special session after all the violence in 1993. And I said, I think that a lot of Republicans came to the Democrat side. I remember Dottie Wham who represented Denver, who was a Republican, but a moderate. Are there any Republicans with whom you guys can join forces on reasonable gun control? Well, I'm certainly hopeful. Getting to know my colleagues down here, they're a diverse group. Painting everyone with a broad brush doesn't work. I know that uh, Rocky Mountain gun owners played in their primaries. And so, you know, not everyone has this sort of a solid bond with that group as they might have had in the past. But this is still a deep partisan issue, and it's a cultural issue. There is a divide and a, and a deep sort of chasm between folks who view 400 million guns as a problem and folks who want to hold on to the idea that, in the end, individual responsibility must carry the day. You know, I, I think that individual responsibility is obviously important. Our society can't function without it, uh, but we have made guns far too easy, easily accessible, 400 million of them. I mean, at this point, it's akin to having millions of landmines just tucked around. We don't know when the next one's going to go off. 
we have some ideas of what triggers it, but it's mostly random. And it's gonna, and it could be you at the grocery store trying to pick out which cereal you like this week. The next thing you know, you're done. And let's note that what happened in Boulder on the power of this weapon, I, I haven't seen anyone who was just wounded. I mean, this was devastating. This was mass murder, and he was able to do it with exceptional efficiency, and he was able to kill a police officer in the process. I mean, our hearts are broken. This was an exceptional, I want to be clear with anyone listening, this is an exceptionally difficult week at the Capitol. You know, I, I, I'm a crier by nature, but I mean, this was a devastating week to listen to stories, to listen to the connections that my colleagues and others have to Boulder, to the people, to the victims. There are people I work with on a day-to-day basis who knew people who died and who now, you know, have friends missing because of this. And so this was a very difficult week, and we're going to take action. This isn't going to be one of those things where, you know, we allow ourselves to be numb to it. And it's, and it's difficult. I got to tell you, Craig, the last time we were debating gun bills on the floor of the House was the safe storage bill during that long debate uh, because the other side did, you know, choose to, to you know, voice a, voice a pretty vociferous opposition. Oh, I'm sorry. Craig, I, I got to run back in and vote. So, Steve Woodrow, you were debating the safe storage law in the Capitol. That wasn't too long ago. And tell everybody about what was happening at the very same time. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So we were debating safe storage on the floor for several hours. And during that time, all of us at the Capitol were on a shelter-in-place order because of a shooting that had happened down the street in the park. And so... You know, we've become and are allowed ourselves to become truly desensitized to just the gravity of the situation. I mean, the sort of joke on the floor was stay away from the windows. But that shouldn't be (laughs) the situation we find ourselves in. There's nothing subtle about a bullet. And we have to remember that, that there is a difference between war zones and civilian zones. And here, we're, we're supposed to be civilians. And yet we have weapons of war out there. It just seems to me when I was a little kid growing up, I watched those Westerns. I realized I lived in the West and I saw everybody carrying guns in regular duels during gun smoke or bonanza. Guns always ended up being used. And I thought, I don't want to live in a society like that. And thankfully, guns were not a part of my upbringing until JFK got blown away by a gun and then RFK and MLK and we could keep going and Abraham Lincoln back in the day. So I thought we were making progress, but now everybody seems to say on the right, we need more guns and it's a profit motive. Lenin said, he'll sell us the rope that will destroy capitalism. Maybe it'll be an AR-15 type weapon, because there's a big profit motive there. Have you thought about that, Steve Woodrow? Is there any way that we remove the profit incentive from these gun dealers to keep getting people to buy newer, better, more powerful weapons all the time? Well, Craig, I think, you know, you just hit it. This is all about money. The NRA isn't about the Second Amendment. It's not about freedom or liberty or making sure people can protect themselves. It's about money, millions and billions of dollars in profits for gun makers and gun manufacturers. You know, 
the only folks who've benefited from increasing, you know, our supply and intake of about three and a half million to four million guns per year to 15 plus million guns per year are the folks who sell the guns and who make the guns and who make the ammunition. They're making money hand over fist while people die. And it's a real problem. And just like the tobacco companies before them, they shouldn't be allowed to make products designed to kill people. And they've hidden behind a constitutional right that they've grossly misinterpreted it and stacked a Supreme Court to endorse that gross misinterpretation. Okay, but now this is where we find ourselves. Individuals have a right to keep and bear arms, but does that mean that they get a right to own whatever weapon they want? Justice Scalia was very clear about that part in Heller, and the answer is an emphatic no. So we have an ability as a state to regulate the types of weaponry enjoyed by the citizens. And it doesn't have to be these uh, assault rifles. Right. And yeah, there's always going to be a quibble about the definition. There's always going to be arguments. But, you know, these weapons, you talk to physicians in ERs, you talk to the docs, they're the ones who see the bullet wounds. They're the ones who see the difference between a 2.2 and a 223 or 5.56. They understand you know, what these different calibers can do to a human body and the amount of kinetic energy rippling through uh, someone's torso that it not just, you know, creates an exit wound and goes through, but it actually hits the body with so much power and so much pressure that it explodes internal organs. Right. And so we have a duty to understand this and to take it on and to not be afraid of the loud vocal minority uh, who threatens us both with electoral defeat and in certain cases with outright violence. You know, there is a faction of folks who they talk in that way and they endorse that type of rhetoric. What we're trying to do is calm everyone down and get back to a place where we can make rational decisions and that actually help people. You said some people want more guns, and I'm going to say it again. If more guns made us safe, we'd be the safest country already. If everyone carrying or the thought of people came carrying or the thought of people concealed carrying was enough to deter these types of events, we wouldn't have them because we've tried the, the guns on tap. It's time to take a different approach. I agree with you. I like your term gun fetish. It's probably nicer than gun nuts. They have a fetish for it and it's all over the media, the Profit Center, etc. Where are you getting your news on this? One, my podcast is a good place to go. Michael Doherty was on three weeks ago telling my audience how the red flag law was working. We don't know all the circumstances, but we had a concerned relative who saw this guy playing with the gun. I want to know more about the defendant. And I look around on various news outlets. And on Fox 31, they will talk about the guy having posts about Islamic superiority and that he was being discriminated against because he was Muslim. We've learned that he cold cocked a guy in the head at high school, claiming that the guy had bullied or said something racial to him. The guy denies it. We also hear about mental health, that he was paranoid imagining things. But I want to know about this guy. And if you turn on right-wing talk radio, of course, they say we need more guns now. This just proves it. It's disgusting. 
but they won't talk about his social media postings condemning homosexuals or condemning abortion as big evil that needs to be obliterated in America. Why did he go to Boulder and my logical prosecutor brain says to kill Boulderites? I would assume that was the reason why. Did he have a grievance with that store? I don't know. I will say this. This guy wanted to live. He took off his tactical gear, put down his weapon, got down to his shorts so that the cops could see that he wasn't armed. He wanted to live. He killed 10 people. It's not going to be a legal trauma. This guy's going to be locked up for the rest of his life. But I'm just wondering, you know, if it was 400 people, God forbid, Colorado has no capital punishment. I'm just wondering whether, as a legislator, I know you're committed against capital punishment, but have you thought about that? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. You know, real quick on the capital punishment piece. No, I don't I don't think that that would have deterred him in this instance, but I mean, we who knows, we could debate that. Um I don't think that the state should be putting people to death for a number of reasons, but you know, getting back to the main point of, you know, wanting to know more about this guy's motivations and what, you know, brought him to this state, whether it was mental health, why he chose Boulder, etc. Yeah, all those are important questions, and thorough investigations are needed in order to get down, you know, to the answers. But at the end of the day, and by the way, I'm a huge proponent of improving our mental health services in the state and nationally. We are so far underfunded and under-resourced that, you know, it's a whole mess, and we have to address that. But I will point out that other countries have tremendous mental health challenges. Other countries have violent video games. Other countries have horrifically violent movies. They don't have our gun problem because they don't have our guns. And, you know, I care about the motivation of this individual because it's important to understand what's out there and what we have to deal with. But we also need to understand and face the truth that there's always going to be radicalism, fanaticism, horribly debilitated folks. And and I want to also be clear that most people who suffer from mental health are victims of violence and the perpetrator. Right. But we're always going to have folks out there that we can't account for. And to me, that is all the more reason that we need to act to make sure that guns aren't so readily available because we can't possibly account for 330 million human beings. But we can certainly, you know, do better on the 400 million guns. Good answer. And one thing I've observed about murderers, they're all mad about something. You know, they're angry, they have a grievance, and What distinguishes America is the weaponry that they can have access to. And then when they kill 10 people, we all get mad. And then to hear right-wingers use a different form of the word mad, mutually assured destruction. Oh, well, they have AR-15s, and we need to walk down the mall with our own AR-15s. We need to go to King Supers with AR-15s. It's mutually assured destruction, isn't it? Yeah, well, look, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. And this mutually assured destruction that they're talking about doesn't actually work. And one of the biggest frauds, in addition to misinterpreting the Second Amendment that the NRA perpetrated the last few years was their bumper sticker slogan from Wayne LaPierre that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That's patently false. Good guys with guns can't be everywhere. 
when police arrive on the scene, they can't always distinguish between who the good guy with the gun is and the perpetrator of the horrible crime that's under, you know, that's underway. It's demonstrably false. You know, I think the most reliable studies suggest that guns are used in self-defense actually fairly rarely. It's not the millions that certain folks like to pretend. At the end of the day, we have people who are unstable and radicalized, under-resourced. We're not able to necessarily get them the help that they need in the time that they need it. We have red flag laws, but they're only effective insofar as the people close to folks who are experiencing these episodes, it depends on them speaking up, and we're not going to have a perfect system. So we have to do what we can to limit the availability of these weapons. We need to make them harder to get. I think the United States has a per capita gun rate. I I have to check to see what it is specific to Colorado, but in the United States, it's something like 130, 120.5, you know, and we're looking at the next highest per capita is Canada at a quarter of that. You know, when you get to Japan, you know, you're, you're under one. We just have a gun density problem in the end. Too many guns per people. And when they're around like that, it's transmogrified into a weapon of mass destruction. And while these events are shocking and gut-wrenching, they are not surprising. Right. And the people who oppose you and the people on the other side are the people who say, we don't need your stinking masks and we don't want your vaccines. A lot of them, not all of them, but they say, we love us some Donald Trump. And you said how Lauren Boebert's a one-trick pony with her gun fetishism, but I submit she also worships Donald Trump and Trumpism, and she embraced the big lie that led to January 6th. I haven't talked to you since then, Steve. I think you have a lot of thoughts, but I've noticed the same people who are charging the United States Capitol are the same people on the other side of this gun debate as well. And if you want to see how deterrence works, at least those people were smart enough to know that D.C. did not like weaponry on people. Otherwise, I think there might have been more guns involved on January 6th. What was your reaction to January 6th, Steve Woodrow? And do you think it ties into this gun debate? Oh, Craig, man, we need another show. (laughs) I I appreciate you asking. I can't believe you and I haven't gotten to speak since the horrible events of January 6th. That was one of the worst, darkest episodes in American history. It had a four-year or five-year lead-up to it with uh, President Trump um, encouraging violence at his rallies and in his speech all the way up through the storming of the Capitol. And you can focus on, you know, or the other side likes to focus on one sentence. He said that we're going to march peacefully. Anyone who was watching knows he had to say that because he realized the potential for violence. Plus, he had a court case out of Kentucky that got thrown out because he threw in those caveat words at the very end. Right. But, I mean, he's also the one who, at the end, his own people were saying, President Trump, you got to call this off. You're the one who has to call this off because everyone knew and everyone agreed that he was the driver and had the power. I think Donald Trump should be arrested and prosecuted for what he did. How do you hold the people responsible who went in? He's individual one. He was the ringleader of all of this. And the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, they were coordinating with his buddy, Roger Stone. Come on, man. Am I right or am I wrong? 
Well, you're the prosecutor, Craig, and I'm sure you could build a very good case on that. And personally, I think I would go for the Roethlisberger call out of Georgia. I mean, it's, it's a recorded that too. episode of the President of the United States pressuring a public official to find votes for him. It doesn't get more blatant than that. So you asked the question, and it was a very good question, of are these things related, the gun debate, what we saw on January 6th, and they are in several different ways. But, you know, most prominently, like you and I have discussed in the past, there's a true impulse by some folks to avoid blame and responsibility and the shame that comes with it. And so rather than have those difficult conversations, they engage in denialism, whataboutism, false equivalence. They create false narratives out of thin air, alternative facts, rather than engage the truth, because in truth, you know, the reality of a, of a situation might require them to change their behavior. If they acknowledge that guns cause gun violence or play a prominent role in gun violence or that even gun violence exists, then that thing, that, that object, that is supposedly inanimate object that they've been sweating over and caring about for decades now has actually killed people and that they might actually have to adjust their behavior. And so it's easier to just say, no, it's not gun violence. It's It's got to be mental health or video games or Hollywood, you know, point the finger at anything else. And we see it I, with respect to what happened on January 6th is the folks who deny that it was actually Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol. Right. No, it must have been secret Antifa infiltrators or or some or false flags or something ridiculous. They're comfortable with, you know, quote unquote, so-called patriots being there to march. But the second that those people who look and talk and act a whole lot like they do, do something that we all agree is abhorrent, they immediately resorted to denialism. No, that couldn't have been us. That doesn't make any sense. And even today, you have Senator, or this week, you had Senator Ron Johnson peddling more of this nonsense. Because ultimately, it allows them to avoid accountability. Absolutely. And you hit on it with their false stats, just to buttress your point and show the connection. The NRA has been spewing big lies for a long time, and their mouthpieces like John Lott, more guns, more safety, or whatever he, his books are titled, they put in phony data. I was a prosecutor for 16 years. I heard about situations where people used guns for legitimate self-defense. I've represented people like that in private practice. It happens, but to nowhere near the degree that the NRA would have you believe. And you already referenced that. But wasn't that kind of a template for fake news? We'll scare everybody. We'll say this guy did that. And so much of it was just made up in order to sell guns. Yeah, the modern day template for fake news, unfortunately, I think still goes to the tobacco companies where they made very clear that doubt was their product. They're selling a question. They're selling a debate. So long as you can make it debatable, so long as you can put doubt in people's heads that cigarettes cause cancer, we can keep selling cigarettes. We can keep making money. So long as you can put doubt in people's heads that climate change exists and that it's real and that it's not just solar flares, we can keep pumping oil out of the ground. We can keep putting it in people's cars. We can keep making money. So long as people question that it might be mental health, it might be video games, it might be the music our kids are listening to, 
It might be all these other things. So long as there's doubt, so long as there's questions in people's heads, we can keep selling our guns and making our money. And that's the playbook. And that's what we're up against. Because beating a debate is very difficult because you have to engage in the debate to win. And by engaging in the debate, you've already lost because all they're looking for is doubt. And so we're up against very powerful forces. And while we've been having the debate that they've wanted, while the doubt has been in the market, in our heads, they've been making billions of dollars. And they're going to keep making that money while the rest of us try to do something to stop it. It's Arab Passover. I want to be hopeful. You make me hopeful, Steve Woodrow, because you're so smart and you're under the gold dome working hard for the people of Colorado. The big lie, you and I are Jewish, and I say the big lie with a capital B and a capital L, well aware that that's a Holocaust reference. I don't do that lightly, but January 6th was born of the big lie, and even now on the eve of Passover, Georgia, based on the big lie, their legislature has passed ridiculous voting restrictions. As Joe Biden put it, it's not Jim Crow, it's Jim Eagle. Connect the dots on that one. It must have affected you as a state legislator to see Georgia that just, thank God, saved the country their Republican-dominated legislature is starting a Jim Eagle era. How is this going to play out? Yeah, this is devastating. We're lucky that we have a Democratic majority controlling Colorado right now because the same shenanigans are going to have been attempted here. We're going to be hearing so-called voter integrity bills and election integrity bills in the next week or so, and they're all designed as you know, sort of dressed-up voter suppression making it harder for people to vote because certain folks of a certain political persuasion have figured out that when people vote, they lose. Whereas the people on my side have figured out that if people can vote, we tend to win because people like our policies. People want leaders who are going to come down to the Capitol. And by the way, if I'm considered smart, we're all in trouble. But people want leaders to come down to the Capitol to fight for them and not buy into the sort of ideological nonsense the fake news, the alternative facts. They want people who can cut through that BS and deliver. And we're not going to have that with people, you know, shrouded in lies and half-truths. Yes, January 6th was born of the big lie, but it also had a bunch of little lies packed into it. In addition to the lie that Trump won, you know, there's the, the little lies, for example, that Vice President Pence had the constitutional authority to throw out votes <laughs> that he, at, at, at his fancy or at his whim, you know, that sort of gets lost in the whirlwind of, of the big lie. Trump won, Trump won. Um, but the falsehoods are actually stacked on top of each other and they become sort of a peelable onion. And you peel it back and what do you have? It's nothing. He didn't win. And it doesn't matter how many arguments they make about counties. Oh, he, but he won the most counties. Well, that's not how our, our elections are decided. Joe Biden said yesterday that he's not sure that there will be a Republican Party when he runs for re-election. And I think that's kind of true. I see Scott Gessler, a guy I know, interviewed many times. He's spewing parts of the big lies. So is Christy Burton Brown. And the reason those two matter is, as this podcast airs, the Republicans are going to elect a new chairman of their party, and both the two frontrunners 
endorse the big lie. How disturbing is that? Well, yeah, look, that's a product of supply and demand. And while I do think certain folks are true believers, there's always going to be a Republican Party because there's always going to be a demand by certain folks to be lied to. It's intoxicating. We saw it happen, Craig, when Fox News started saying that Biden had actually won the election. Mm -hmm. There was a group of folks who literally abandoned Fox News and rushed over to Newsmax and own, you know, One American News Network to get those lies. And it was only after Dominion threatened to sue those outlets that they really stopped pushing, you know, the big lie about election fraud and votes being changed, et cetera. But the market demand was there. And it's not going away. Right. And that's a psychological issue. That is an issue of, you know, there, you know, how do we reach people who want to be liked, who would prefer the comforting lie over the inconvenient truth? And that's, that's the riddle. How do you reach those folks? I think back in the day, we had probably more connectivity in America. You know, I think the internet has actually, you know, connected us electronically, but separated us socially. You know, we no longer, or at least I don't see it anymore, the type of stuff, the Legion Halls, the bowling alley, you know, the bowling tournament teams, the leagues, you know, that people could come together after work and socialize and hang out with one another and and just be with each other socially. And now we have people who are in their homes, siloed, watching news that they already agree with, that is radicalizing them. They go online, they get to choose their own news online disregard the information that, you know, is uncomfortable and doesn't confirm their bias. And it's perpetuating uh, more social division. We have to, especially when COVID's done, make a concerted effort to come back together as people, non-political beings, just people, to be within each other's company. Yeah, I got to say, it's one of the brilliant things about the state government is that we're all still, you know, required to come together in this building together. And by sheer proximity, bumping into each other in the halls, being in committee meetings with each other for hours, the political positioning that we see on Twitter starts to break down and friendships and relationships start to form. And you start to see these folks not as just political opponents, but as people. And they have thoughts. And while we don't agree, there's a connectivity there. And once we reinforce that, and get back to that relationship-based, you know, sort of approaches, you know, not just in government, but everywhere, I think, I think we'll start to move past a lot of these deeper divisions that we've seen. But it's going to take a concerted effort, and it's going to take a lot of us unplugging. I'm addicted to my phone and the Internet. We all have to unplug and just hang out with each other uh, when it's safe to do so. And isn't that what Passover is all about? I hearken back to days when we had big family gatherings pre-COVID and people with disparate views. And we could talk about the Nuggets are going to win the NBA championship with Aaron Gordon and Nicola and JaVale McGee coming back. I long for those days. They're not quite here, but let's wrap it up this way, Steve Woodrow, and tie it in together the way you tie everything in so beautifully. Passover. 2021. What does it mean to you? Oh, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's, uh, it's tough because Passover is such a beautiful holiday, especially the Seder. It's my favorite meal. And, and as you know, as a, 
the Jewish person, we love our food. <laughs> we love our holidays and we right. love eating and, and we gathering. We get to read a bunch about the law. Together. Yeah, this is the law. That's the law. And for lawyers, it's a heyday. Food and law. The only thing that's missing is CLE credit. <laughs> I do miss the connectivity. I do miss being with my family, my aunt and uncle, and, and just being able to all come together with my cousins around the table. And plus, Seder has gotten so much more exciting than it was when I was a kid. I mean, now we throw marshmallows and have little plastic frogs, and it's really acted out. It's, nice. it's gotten so much more brought to life. And so I can't wait to get back to that. But, you know, if we're going to tie things in, Craig, I think what, what Passover is is one of the most incredible stories of all time. And we have all been going through the sea, trying to cross the Red Sea. We're trying to find that path. We're trying to get to that to that other side, and it's perilous, and it's fraught, and we're hurried, um, but we're all going through it together, and we got to get there, you know, because it's the promised land. And now you are one of the leaders, a modern-day Moses, Steve Woodrow. I can't thank you enough for coming back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Every gun article seems to quote you, and I like that. You're outspoken. You know, back in the day, I don't know if you heard about Pat Pasco, but she was a state legislator who gave her heart and soul with Felix Sparks and that organization I was part of, People United, No Children's Handguns. And we reformed the law. And the beauty was, maybe it was the end of the crack cocaine era, whatever, but crime went down for a long time in Denver. And sadly, now it's upticking and upticking. But I have confidence with great Denver officials like Steve Woodrow that better days are ahead. Thanks a lot, Steve. You're too kind, Craig. You know, as one of my colleagues down here said earlier this week, they're not going to hear our silence. So let's get moving and let's get working and let's get it done. Beautiful. Chag Sameach. A beautiful Passover to you and your family. Do some good down there. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks, Craig. Same to you and yours. Be well. If I had to guess, that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kid's education, my grandchild's education? And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways, not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he, how much he's worth now, you know, what. But let's say he's got $2 billion and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's going to be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's, there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes, but if you're charitably inclined, it certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. 
It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael, and I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done, and they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. I've known this guy forever. Right now, he's at a cafe in Tel Aviv. He grew up in a town called Denver, Colorado. It's Ken Toltz, GW class of 75. Am I correct? You are correct. Revealing my uh, age already. The first 30 seconds. I did that in my Colorado Sun column to justify my second vaccine shot. What about you guys? You had to wait in line. Didn't you wish you were just a tad older? You're in Israel. Maybe the rules are a lot different. I know it's hard to find a quiet place in Israel, but tell us what the heck you're doing in Tel Aviv. Well, I want to tell you about the COVID situation here. They had a very difficult time with COVID. They also, though, have a very excellent medical plan and system. Within three weeks of arriving in Israel, I had my first vaccination in December. And four weeks later, I had my second vaccination in January. And three quarters of the country has been vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. See, that's really something. So you're out socializing. Are people wearing masks? They are wearing masks, but indoors and restaurants now, which just opened. Indoor restaurants opened less than two weeks ago. You're uh, allowed to to be here without a mask. It's going to be great. I want to tell you that as this hits goes through America, the vaccination process, it's going to make a huge difference in people's emotions. And you won't believe the difference. I just read a story in the Washington Post about friendships breaking up, about people busting through lines. I mean, my God, Kenny Toltz, you moved to Israel to get a shot a little early? <laughs> well, that was just one of the benefits. There are many benefits, as you know. If, if you have one Jewish grandparent, you are welcome to move to Israel and become a citizen. And there are a host of financial benefits for new Israeli citizens. So I'm enjoying all of the benefits. But one of the first ones was enrolling in one of the Israeli health plans. There's four to choose from. They're all HMOs, essentially. And they actually wanted to know before I arrived which one I wanted to select. Well, this is so timely. Yeah, let me not bury the lead because... Ken Toltz is an expert on Israel. He's made Aliyah. He'll talk about that. They just had their fourth election in two years. Ken Toltz participated. He knows all about it. But Ken Toltz spent a lot of time in Boulder, even though he was born and bred in Denver. Like a lot of us, he spent part of his life living not just in Boulder, but South Boulder. And we'll get to that, but so that people understand who you are, Tell everybody about your upbringing in Denver. Well, Craig, and as you know, we grew up in southeast Denver, the Hilltop neighborhood, 
it was an idyllic place to grow up, right? Denver back in the day, the 60s and the 70s was an idyllic place to grow up. I went to public schools, including George Washington High School, which I was proud to be a part of George Washington High School. And as you remember, they integrated George Washington High School in the uh, early 70s, late 60s by busing kids from the northern part of the city to our part of town. That was something that we had to adjust to and learn to get along, and we did. Uh, when we had our reunion not just a couple of years ago, it was great to have people from the African American community join us together, and uh, we spent the day at George Washington, which is today a very multicultural high school. Once again, sadly, they came in second in the state basketball tournament. No. But we are part of a social experiment there with forced desegregation through busing. And it was part of the debate. You're big on Democrat politics. Just, I don't want to diverge there, but in the long run, thumbs up or thumbs down to what we went through, this social experiment. Well, I don't, I don't think any doubt that it's thumbs up. And that was really noticeable when we had our 40th high school reunion. We had two leaders of the class together who headed that committee. One was an African-American and one was a Jewish woman. And just the camaraderie together was so noticeable because we went through that experience together. The African-Americans and the white community, you know, we we adjusted to each other. Uh, It wasn't easy. It was challenging. There were issues and problems. But we all survived and we all went on to live, you know, our lives and uh, face the same challenges, right? I give it a thumbs up, too, but I remember Norm Early running against Wellington Webb. I'm sure you do, too. And to me, a big turning point was when Wellington Webb said, hey, I went to Manual and I know Denver and busing needs to end. It's not good for anybody right now. And to me, that was a turning point in the election. Do you recall that? I don't recall that being an issue in that election, but I do recall that it was certainly a political issue when they first started and you know people demagogued as you can you know as they will you know issues like that you know scare people about what might happen but that was we're talking over 40 years ago now right right you are so smart on so many subjects but again let's get back to you because your family was prominent in denver your beloved father warren told's a legend your mother ruth what a personality They recently passed. I'm so sorry for their loss. Tell everybody about your extraordinary parents and your family history. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Craig. I really appreciate that. I lost my parents just two years ago. They were second-generation Denverites. My grandparents were first-generation Denverites. My great-grandparents on both sides, my mom and my dad's side, moved to Colorado from Eastern Europe. They came all the way across the country. And I just can't imagine the courage that it took to leave Eastern Europe, not knowing a word of English, and move to Colorado back in the day at the turn of the century. But they did, and they succeeded. And many people from Eastern Europe stayed on the East Coast, but a a smattering came out to the West and became pioneers in the Jewish community throughout the state. So my parents were beneficiaries of the success of their parents. And one of the things that was very important to them was being involved in the Jewish community and supporting Israel. They made many trips to Israel and they supported the idea that 
If you were successful in business, you had a responsibility to give back to the community. Um, that they learned from their parents. My grandparents were part of the founding generation and supported the hospitals, the universities, the synagogues, the organizations, all of whom were necessary because the Jewish community was not welcome in the uh, non-Jewish community in any of those institutions. But they didn't just have any business. They had a public-facing business, a fine reputation, dependable cleaners. What a story that is. Was it your grandparents who started Dependable? Exactly, Craig. My grandfather uh, started a little tailor shop in the Mayfair neighborhood of Denver. And as legend has it, my grandmother said to him, you know, these people might want to have their pants pressed before you give it back to them. Maybe you ought to bring in a pant press. And that's how the dry cleaning business got started. We named it Dependable, my grandfather. And my grandmother and my grandfather worked together. She was one of the very early pioneers of women in business. In fact, I can remember she used to be interviewed on the radio. Probably this is back in the 1960s. They would have a show. Tell us what it's like to be a woman in the business world. And wow. My grandmother, Esther Bogdanowitz, would be one of the people they would interview. And that's on my mom's side of the family. On my father's side of the family, Israel Tolk was his name, my grandfather. And he went into the tire business. He started out trading tires. He would drive from small town to small town and supply a few tires to gas stations because back in those days, gas stations would also have tires. And after years and years of doing that kind of trading from town to town, he opened a retail business in Denver called United Tire. That became a success. So my grandparents on both sides of my family were successful in business from the early days of Denver. This is going back to the 1930s and 40s and 50s. All right, here's the key question. When they got to town, did they go to the west side or the east side? <laughs> that is the key question, as you know. So my dad's side of the family, the Tolt side, settled in East Denver. And my mom's side of the family, which was Weisbart and Danowitz, settled in the east side of Denver. And did they follow the normal model where the West Siders were a little more orthodox than the East Siders, the Temple Emanuel people? Well, my you're right. My mom's side of the family was reformed. They were early members of Temple Emanuel. My dad's side of the family, the Tolt side, was conservative. I wouldn't say orthodox. He was a founding member of the Alliance, Hebrew Educational Alliance, my grandfather, Israel Tolt. And there is a legend that when my father met my mother, he snuck into a party that she was hosting with a couple of other his West Side buddies. They went over to the East Side, and my mom was 18. I think the party was hosted at her place. And within a year, they were married, and it was a West Side meets East Side mixed marriage. How much older than your mom was your dad? He was three years older. And their marriage lasted over 60 years, Craig. It was a beautiful thing to behold. You were so lucky. Dependable Cleaners, how many outlets did it have at its largest point? Yeah, so uh, my grandfather actually pioneered the concept of putting cleaning plants in strip centers. It used to be a centralized business where you had one great big facility and trucks to deliver and pick up. And he came up with the idea, and this is going to segue nicely, I think, of there was a grocery chain at about the same time that was also doing something similar. 
and it was called King Supers. Hmm. And my grandfather's idea was wherever King Supers opens, we ought to take a look at opening a dependable cleaners. And that's an old Colorado business. I've been looking up King Supers, Lloyd King. Do you know what year he started King's and what city he started that in? It's funny that you say that because I looked that up as well. And I, if I remember he started the first grocery store in the late 40s. 1947. What suburb of Denver? Ironically, in the news this week, it's Arvada. Was it, was it Arvada? It's Arvada where the perpetrator and his family lived. So, And, you know, back in that day, Arvada was not a suburb, right? Back in that day, Arvada was really a separate city that was probably considered kind of far away from Denver, if you think about it. Yes, I do think about it. And I'm older than you, so I remember. Today, it's all one big metroplex. Yes, but it's still not that far. And so what a joining at the hip, King Supers and Dependable. I know Dependable liked the action at the King Supers. Was there a corporate relationship? Did Kings appreciate it as well? Well, you know, when my dad took over the business, he did actually get in touch, you know, closer with King Supers, and they explored the concept of putting in dependable cleaners, drop-off and pickup inside the stores as an additional service for King Supers customers. I don't recall that they ever actually set up one. They may have, I just don't remember. But my dad, Warren, kept that same uh, concept of trying to be close to the King Supers, which, as you know, always had the lion's share of the grocery market in Denver metro area. And it was a successful strategy. He opened over 30 dependable cleaners stores throughout the Denver metro area, and including one in Boulder. Uh, my brother Stephen now owns and runs dependable cleaners, and I think he's up to almost 40 locations. Just in Colorado, or is it in other states as well? No, uh, it's not the kind of business that you can franchise. It's a very hands-on, production-oriented business. You need to have close supervision of the dry-cleaning plants, and that was the other thing my dad pioneered, was the idea of putting a dry-cleaning shirt laundry plant in these suburban strip mall centers. That had never been done before, and that was a huge growth factor in the success of the business, because you could be give the service closer to the customer. The customer walk in and says, I want this, I want that, this is the way I want it. And the person who's actually doing the work or managing that store can oversee and make sure that it's done correctly. I can make a lot of jokes. You can really clean up in that business. The subject's just a little too dry, sort of like water law last week. But everybody knows dependable cleaners, and we know that your family was charitable. You got involved in all sorts of drives to help the less fortunate what are you guys, a bunch of do-gooders? Yeah, a bunch of do-gooders. You know, my dad also created the concept of Coats for Colorado. I think that's what you might have been right. referring to. Coats for Colorado is over 20 years old, has collected and distributed over a million winter coats, do it every year, beginning in October, and the distribution is December. It's been an incredible thing. It had never been done before, and I'm not exactly sure why it hadn't been done before, but somebody from the Jewish community actually came to my dad with the concept. And, you know, my dad was a pioneer, but he's also a good listener. And when uh, customers suggested that, he said, let's try it. And it was successful. And, you know, I think, as you said, it was in alignment with his values, which was passed down from his father. 
which is if you're successful in business, you have a responsibility to give back to the community. And what's the best way to give back to the community? What are the most efficient ways to do that? And when you have all these locations around town and people do buy new coats and replace, you know, their old coats, that seemed to be a natural and it, it caught on and, and was uh, very successful. It's unbelievable. If I was sarcastic or cynical, I would say only a million coats. You couldn't do two. Anyway, it's unbelievable what you and your family have done. And I just want to drill down because Judaism, Israel, you had a grandparent named Israel, and now you're an Israeli and an American citizen, I do believe. And your path, your journey, Judaism and Jewishness so intertwined with our tradition, our families. Tell us about your journey, Ken. How did you get from being a hilltop boy to make an aliyah to Israel? I can't believe it myself sometimes, Craig. But, you know, you remember the days when Jewish youth group was popular, and we also went to uh, Jewish religious school a couple of days a week, and we had bar mitzvahs. But that really didn't relate to Israel so much. It related to the American Jewish experience. But when I was in college, I was looking for something different to do in my junior year of college. In the University of Colorado, they had a, a program of international studies, and I wandered into the office one day. And the head of the office said to me, well, we still have openings in the program in Israel. I had never been to Israel before. I didn't speak a word of Hebrew. But I was the kind of guy that said, okay, let's go. Let's try it out. So I signed on the dotted line. And a few months later, I found myself in 1977 at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. It turned out to be an incredible time to be in Israel for somebody who's interested in political what science. What year was that, Ken? 1977 in the summer, and just a month before we arrived, and there was about 200 students from all over the country, was the big election in which Menachem Begin won. The Likud party defeated the Labor Party, which had been the only party in government of Israel from the creation. So for almost 30 years, there had been one party rule of the government in Israel. And this was the first time ever that that didn't happen, that that happened, was overturned. And a new party came into power, a new prime minister, and it was a very historic time to be there. And then, as you remember, just a couple of months later, the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, made his famous declaration of, I will go to Jerusalem and speak in the Knesset about how to make peace between Egypt and Israel. So that was also the time that I was in college here. Those were amazing, uh, you know, experiences to be there and personally witness. And that's the Israel that I remember. That's the Israel that, you know, that yearned for peace, that would do anything that they felt possible, even meeting with the leader of the country that had invaded them and caused the death of thousands just three years before, if you remember. Do I remember? My brother was at Hebrew U in 73 when the Yom Kippur War broke out on the same kind of program you were on. So it's a small world. And I'm thinking Begin was the introduction of someone on the right governing Israel, just like Ronald Reagan would come to power shortly thereafter. And now we have Trump and Netanyahu. And I know you have strong feelings about Netanyahu. By the way, Ken Toltz writes columns regularly. He just got published in the Jerusalem Post. As you can tell, he's really bright about all this. Where can people read your columns, Ken? 
Yeah, thank you, Craig. I was just published. I told the story of a new film that came out here in Israel in the Jerusalem Post, but I also am writing for a publication called The Times of Israel, which is English language. It's a website, The Times of Israel. And I've also written for another Israeli-based paper called Haaretz. And I've been writing for the Huffington Post back from 2013 and some other publications as well. But I wanted to mention, because we were talking about Menachem Begin, this will be of interest to you. There is a new documentary film about the life of the prime minister that was produced and made by a guy who's based in Denver, Rob Schwartz. You may want to uh, talk to him. He hasn't come out yet, but I've just been researching it so I can write a piece about it for the Jerusalem Post. At least Begin didn't go to prison or get prosecuted that I remember. He was controversial. He was a bit of a terrorist during the English occupation. But how did you get there, Ken Toltz? That's what I want to know. I assume you went to Temple Emmanuel since you didn't know a word of Hebrew, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> I went to Beth Joseph Religious School, as you know. But how did you not learn a word of Hebrew with Mrs. Bloomfield giving us some M's for every Hebrew word we can master? <laughs> no, I, I, when I came here, I didn't know Hebrew. They put us in a Hebrew immersion program for three months called Ulpan. And I'm still doing Ulpan now at the ripe old age of 60-something because I'm still trying to learn Hebrew to speak here as I'm surrounded by Israelis in this cafe who are all speaking Hebrew, and I sure wish I knew what they were talking about. They're talking about you. By the way, (laughs) here's the thing. Let's cut right to the chase. The election, what the hell happened? I can never figure out who wins every time Israel has an election. That's why I have to call you in a Tel Aviv cafe. Who won? (laughs) They don't know. 95% of the vote has been counted. Israel has a parliamentary system, so you vote here for the party. You don't vote for the person. And the party is allocated seats in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, based on the turnout, based on the vote that they get. And the government is formed by the party that can put together a coalition of a majority. In this case here, it would be 61 seats. No party gets as close to winning 61 seats, right? Right. So you have to make friends. But does their system work? I mean, our system is suspect now. Israel, I'm just wondering, you're a student of political science. Are these systems working? Or as my late brother told me before he died, you know, maybe this isn't working anymore. Well, the voting system works wonderfully. I had the chance to vote as an Israeli citizen just a couple of days ago. It was smooth, easy, and beautiful. And I have to tell you, a very emotionally moving experience for me to cast my first vote as an Israeli citizen. I went into the voting booth, and I looked at the selection of parties to vote for. Craig, there were 39 choices. That's what's happened in these parliamentary systems where... People divide to finer and finer parties on the basis of their beliefs. And in the parliamentary system, it, it, it is difficult because of that to form a governing coalition that's functional. And Israel has not really had a very good track record of forming functional governing coalitions. That's why this is the fourth election in two years. That's the fourth national election in just two years. 
So the results are inconclusive. Right. But somehow Israel is functioning, though. Your COVID system in the end is a model for the world. The hell you're out there drinking beers in Tel Aviv. I'm not going out in Denver, although I think it's only a week or two away. But I'm just wondering, and also you seem to have peace and didn't Czechoslovakia move its capital or its embassy to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Seems like Israel is doing okay with this strange government that really isn't all together. Well, I think the view from afar, you're right. The view from afar, Israel is functioning. It's it's generally at peace, both with the Arab community. There's 2 million Arab citizens of Israel. They voted. They voted for their own parties. And some of those Arab parties are going to be represented in the new Knesset. And this is one of the very interesting things going on right now is because there was not a conclusive majority for a coalition, it's possible that some of these Arab members of the Knesset will have a say in who is the next prime minister of Israel. So I would encourage people to watch for that over the next few weeks to see. So it's a working democracy. People vote. Now, they're still dealing with the issue of the Palestinian population that doesn't live within the confines of Israel, but lives next door. And this is an ongoing problem that many have tried to figure out how to create a quote-unquote peace process. So far, there is not a peace process. But the Palestinians are also due to have elections, and perhaps new leadership on both sides will create a new environment. Ken's got to get to his Hebrew lesson, so I'm going to pepper you with some fast lawyer-like questions and see if you can give me some quick answers like, race relations in Israel between Jews and Arabs, even between Jews who are light-skinned, dark-skinned? Is it better than America, worse than America? And I'm not an expert on Israel. I was there once, but it seems to me there's less integration there. And then maybe they're a little behind America when it comes to race relations. Am I right or am I wrong? No, I think you're right. I think the Arab community tends to stay among themselves. The Jewish population tends to stay among itself. And this is one of the things that many people are trying to work on because there is professionals from the Arab community who work in all segments of Israeli society, including the healthcare system. And it was obvious as the COVID hit that people in the Jewish community were being taken care of by Arab doctors and nurses. And these people deserve to be represented in the highest level of government as well. You know, there's a whole population of Ethiopian Jews that have moved to Israel. So you do see, you know, African Jewish population here in Israel. When I walked into the cafe, there were two African customers speaking Hebrew. Like nothing you've never seen before, Craig. Well, I was amazed. Jews come in every different size, shape, and color. They're not all from the Pale of Settlement like our ancestors. But what about the religious wars over there? You know, here in America, I fear that evangelicals and the right-wing religious groups could be the ruin of America. And I worry about that for Israel, too, the extreme right religious people in Israel. Am I right or am I wrong? No, you're right. They're extreme in terms of their religious views. They live together in enclaves, neighborhoods, and cities. Here they're called Haredi, ultra-Orthodox. You know, it didn't become really a big issue until covid and they 
to some extent refused to wear masks, re refused to do social distancing, and the rates of COVID were much higher in those communities and that created some ill will that had not existed up to that point. So we don't know where the relationships go from here because we're just coming out of that. All right, we're just coming out of COVID in Colorado. Everybody's spirits were getting uplifted. Then Monday, this perpetrator goes in. He was charged this morning. We're, we're taping this Thursday morning with 10 counts first-degree murder. This terrible shooting in Boulder, Colorado. I know you have a lot of thoughts about it, Ken. You, bit, you know Boulder. You know the gun control issue. What are your thoughts? You know, Craig, that was my neighborhood I lived in for six years. That was my King Supers. I shopped in for six years. I knew the employees. My neighborhood is just completely devastated. It's one of the most beautiful locations for a shopping center, a grocery store that you can imagine. It's right in the, you know, at the foot of the Flatirons. And this is what I've, I've been working on, gun violence prevention, for over 20 years. And one of the things I always say to people is the random nature, you should never think that any place is safe from a potential gun violence situation as we've seen in movie theaters, schools, synagogues, churches, stores, now grocery store in Boulder. The fact is we have way too many guns in circulation in the United States. The AR-15 style rifle that this guy used, there are over, I believe it's in the tens of millions that have been sold to anybody. Anybody who's over the age of 21 can walk into a store and buy one of those and the ammunition that goes with it. So what do we do, Ken? What do we do? You know, I've been working on the issue for over 20 years, Craig, since Columbine High School. As you mentioned, I was running for Congress when that happened, 1999. And it happened in the district in which I was running, so it became, you know, personal for me. And I, I think not only have we not done enough, we really haven't really been able to grasp, you know, seriously grasp the extent of the problem. So we tinker around the edges and we do things like background checks. So, you know, it's, it's a good idea. We should have background checks, waiting periods, gun locks. These are important safety factors. But the fact remains there are millions of guns in circulation and anybody can walk into a store. And what I usually say is anybody with a grievance has easy access to a gun. And if that's the country we want to live in, then that, this is the result of that. I don't want to live there. And you're in Israel. A lot of people say, hey, everybody has guns in Israel. No, that's not true. Tell everybody what gun control is like in Israel. There is no gun stores in Israel. There is a military and a police force. And when you go into the military at the age of 18, which is essentially mandatory, you do receive a weapon and training in how to use a weapon. And you see soldiers on home for leave for the weekend or back and forth from base to home carrying their weapons. They're in uniform and they're trained. And they're on the buses, they're on the trains, they're on the city streets. You see them carrying their weapons. That's who carries weapons, generally speaking. Gun violence is not, it's, it's not the problem that it is in the United States in any country in the world. We far exceed the statistics of any other country in terms of people using a gun, not only, you know, for a criminal purpose like this guy in Boulder, but for suicide. And, you know, two-thirds of the gun violence deaths in the United States are by are suicide. I do know that. And people lose that. So what happens in Israel? You're an Israeli citizen. If you want a gun, can you have one? Not that I know of. I, I don't think you can. You would have to show a need, and they have armories for weapons, and 
Nobody can walk in a store in Israel or any civilized country and just buy an AR-15. And we've got to stop that. Denver, in its wisdom, put in an assault weapon ban, which has held for decades. Then this Judge Hartman in Boulder says cities can't do that. Come on, man. That'll be one legislative response. But we have to ban assault weapons. Are you down with that, Ken? Is that doable in Colorado? Well, you know, we could ban the sale going forward, but the real question is, what are we going to do about the ones that are in circulation? Buy bags. Buy bags. Right? I mean, that's, We've got to turn that is, that's the real question. You know, to get serious about this, we have to get less guns in circulation. That That is the only yes. way to really get serious about it. Otherwise, it's, this has been going on for decades. And go to funerals. Could this tragedy have happened in Israel? Tragedies have happened in Israel with guns, right. but they've been terrorists, generally speaking. You know, they're you know people who had trying to make a political statement, and sometimes there's even been you know as you know there has been Jewish terrorists. You know, the Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was killed by a Jewish person with a gun. Yep, exactly. So that happened one time over 25 years ago. In America, it happens every day. You know Stan Garnett, and he and I were talking just last night about the tragedy. And he said what you did, that there are so many guns out there that maybe the opportunity is lost. I said, dang, Stan, we were talking about this in the 80s. You know, and I remember when the Nuggets in Denver bought back guns with goods. You remember that program? I participated in it, you know, supported it. As a Denver DA, we wanted guns off the street. It's a big equation. It's going in the wrong direction. And you fought it ever since, Columbine, Ken Toltz. Give us some answers. What would you do if you were Governor Polis? Well, I just want to say, Craig, that the law enforcement community has always been supportive of the gun violence prevention political community. We have always had police officers testify with us at state legislatures and, and at the federal level as well, the law enforcement community and the healthcare community as well, because the people that work in emergency medicine, they see the damage that a bullet does to a human body. They don't want to see those people coming into the emergency room with bullet wounds from high-powered rifles. It is horrible. You know that, you know, nobody talks about this. In Boulder this week, 10 people were killed. Zero were injured. Every single person who was shot was killed. That's the lethality of these weapons and the ammunition that there is available to anybody like this fellow who bought it just a couple of weeks ago in some sporting goods store in Colorado. If we're serious about ending gun violence, we will change that system of retail sales of guns and ammunition. And we will really consider how to get as many of these weapons out of people's possession as possible. If I was governor of Colorado, that's what I would work towards. I agree with you, Ken Told. You're so generous with your time. As you look at America from afar, how does America look? We were raised in Denver public schools, and I always thought America was best, but I'm shook. Donald Trump, he frightened me how many people voted for him. Tell me your thoughts. Where are we going in this world? Well, I, you know, uh, January 6th was a terrible, terrible day for me. I was watching on an Israeli news channel live, Israeli news broadcaster broadcasting from the mall in Washington. 
just like CNN, except it was Israel. And I was like, oh, my God, the Israelis are watching this. The whole world watched those people go from Donald Trump speaking directly to the Capitol and attack the police officers and go inside looking for members of Congress. And if they would have found members of Congress, Greg, you and I both know, we would have a much worse tragedy. It scared the hell out of me. It took me days and days to really just, I, I couldn't, I really couldn't do much of anything. I was useless. I know people in Washington and so do you. And you know people who were there in the House chambers and in the Senate chambers who were at risk of being killed. So uh, it, America, you know, thank God, Joe Biden won by a, a few thousand votes in a few, few in a few states, but it easily could have gone the other direction. We have a huge problem to deal with, and, and it's 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 on the surface. We all know about it now, and we better take it seriously. I don't want my kids and my grandkids to grow up in that kind of a world, and I'm sure you feel the same. Well, we're about to celebrate Passover, and we talk about the story that needs to be told about your area of the world. I don't know how you're going to do Passover in Israel. Tell us about that. That's fascinating to me. <laughs> Passover in Israel is really interesting. First of all, everybody's already wishing each other uh, a happy holiday, and it doesn't start until Saturday night, so it's Thursday. And they started wishing each other Hag Sameach. Yesterday, I started hearing it. The grocery stores take all the bread-related products off the shelves, and they cover the shelves with paper so you can't even see if there's anything there. And, you know, it's the Jewish state. It's going to celebrate Passover the way you're supposed to celebrate Passover. I, I was invited to a family Seder because uh, I do, I've made a few friends here and nice enough to be invited to a family Seder with an Israeli family. So I'll have to report afterwards what an Israeli family Seder is like. I, I have never been to one, so I don't know what to expect. Uh, but holidays in Israel are special. I can imagine. I live it vicariously. I'm interested in your experience. I hope we get to visit there someday. But let's end on the grocery store note, because I think this might be a turning point. I'm going to write my column about what happened in Boulder, and I don't have to turn it in till Sunday night to my editors at the Colorado Sun. Everybody's reacting, and the reason why I think maybe this will be a turning point is it's my experience when tragedies hit, murders, etc., and you talked about the day of violence at the Capitol. People want to distance themselves from that. When you hear about somebody getting shot at a bar late at night, you can say, I would not be in that bar. I wouldn't be in that neighborhood. I wouldn't be out at that time in the morning. But then certain things hit home because you realize this could have been me when I did the Holler case when they were uh, very near the Capitol Hill King Supers, just coming home after night on the town. People said, boy, that could have been me. I know that King Supers. And now this King Supers in Boulder, everybody goes shopping in Israel and America. And if you can't feel safe shopping, then you know, what good is coming out of this COVID isolation? People are fed up, and I think it's going to lead to some changes here in Colorado. And we all know what happens in Colorado spreads to the rest of the world. You've spread out to the rest of the world. Thanks for listening to me, but is this a turning point? Or I'm just dreaming. If Sandy Hook wasn't a turning point, 
this won't be either. Well, it does galvanize public opinion. I think you're right, Craig. And I've researched this and actually written about the major pieces of pieces of gun violence prevention legislation were always written after huge tragedies. Uh, the, the killing of Bobby Kennedy in 1968 was one of them. So I think we can look, hopefully, to the political process, the government, to to make some changes. But it's going to be up to us. You know, we have to provide the will to the politicians to make the changes, and we have to be creative with the solutions. We can't wait for somebody else to take care of this. We don't want to know more people who are victims. We don't want to be comforting them. Oh, well, it's terrible for you, but thank God I'm okay. The random nature of this, it could be happen to anybody, anyplace, anytime. And you, if you're not doing something about it, then you're shirking your responsibility as a citizen and, you know, really your humanity. This is not about ideology. This is about our hu humanity. So I would encourage everybody to look up and around about what, what can they do so um, these, we don't have to continue to suffer these kinds of tragedies and, and we don't have to live this way. It's so thank you for what you yeah, said. Thank I you. appreciate it. Chag Sameach. This is the definitive Kent Holtz interview until our next one. Okay. And thanks so much for your <laughs> okay. time, Ken. Good luck with your After Hebrew. the next election. Yes. Happy Passover. Okay. Chag Sameach. And best to your family. Same to yours. Bye. Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys and girls basketball and girls soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, get a great high quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP and help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com.
Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. And wow, what a show it was. Thank you. I'm sorry about the tragic events, but as my troubadour is saying, we've got to live this life. Life goes on. We have to make it better. I am going to go back to my gun control roots. This is madness. Mutually assured destruction if we keep arming up and up. More guns worked, then we would have the answer. Steve Woodrow said that. What a smart guy. That guy is going far. Thanks, Steve, for coming back to Craig's Lawyers Lounge. Ken Toltz, all the way from Eretz Israel. For anybody celebrating Pesach, Passover, happy Passover. Happy Easter to those of you who celebrate that way. We really need a renewal, a rejuvenation. Let's keep talking about it. See you next Saturday. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.